they're worth reading. Others are uh, of questionable authorship and authenticity and reflect uh, views that the church rejected from the very beginning. And some of those rejected books who, that have questionable teaching are the apocryphal gospels. There are a whole group of them. One of them is called the Infancy Gospel of Thomas, and it's filled with stories about Jesus as a child. Many miraculous stories about the young boy Jesus. <clears throat> Here are just a few. He's playing with some friends, dealing with clay figures, like he'd make a little bird, and then just for fun and doing best as friends, he would animate the clay and the bird would fly away. Another time, he's working with his father Joseph on a construction project. Either Joseph or Jesus have made a cut and their board is lacking in length to finish the project. He miraculously fixes that. He also has friends, childhood friends, who are ill from time to time whom he cures. He also has friends, children, friends in his little village who die and he restores them to life. You get the picture of those stories. There are also multiple stories about Joseph and Mary taking Jesus to teachers to enhance his education. In one, a teacher named Zacchaeus is instructing Jesus and he basically tells Jesus most of what he knows and then the tables are turned and Jesus begins instructing Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus is a, a good and humble man and he humbly confesses, I cannot follow his understanding. In other words, he, ca I, he cannot achieve Jesus' level of understanding or knowledge, even though he's a professional instructor. Well, Joseph and Mary aren't satisfied. They want to take him to an even more learned teacher, and so they do. This teacher, though, becomes impatient and annoyed with little Jesus, slaps him on the head to express his frustration, and in response, Jesus curses the man. He falls down and dies. Later, Joseph tells Mary, don't let Jesus even go outside. Everybody who provokes him dies. Wow, how would you like to have had that version of the young Jesus in your Sunday school class. Well, we call such accounts illustrations of a docetic view of Jesus. Uh, docetism was a heresy from the Greek verb dokeo, meaning to seem, which said Jesus seemed like he was a real, authentic human being, but honestly, he was a pure spirit figure and didn't have any of the limitations of normal human beings. Jesus seemed to be human, but he was actually just masquerading. Now, friends, our four canonical Gospels affirm Jesus' full humanity. But again, a number of these apocryphal Gospels make Jesus less than fully human. Fully divine, for sure, but not fully human. Now, surprisingly, you may not know this, but the holy book of Islam, the Quran, is very complimentary in general toward Jesus, extremely complimentary, and provides him with at least a dozen different titles, all of whom you would like. However, there is one title they will not grant, that Jesus is the unique child or son of Allah. They say that is heresy. Jesus was not the incarnation of God. Jesus was not God in human flesh, God present in our midst. 
On the other hand, though, the Quran has a docetic sort of view of Jesus presenting him really like an angel kind of figure with few or no human limitations. For example, Surah 1929, so chapter and verse 1929 in the Quran records a very adult-sounding Jesus preaching his first sermon. Now, Dale has already preached from Luke on the occasion of Jesus' first sermon, at least in Luke's narrative. It was in Jesus' hometown of Nazareth. In this situation, Jesus delivers his first sermon from his cradle as a newborn infant. A little hard to swallow. So the Quranic view is that from the day of his birth, Jesus did not need to grow or mature intellectually or spiritually, but arrived at birth with limitless divine knowledge. Now, you'll see a very dramatic difference in the story in Luke's gospel that Anne's going to read for us in just a minute. The, it's the only canonical gospel that tells us anything about the boyhood of Jesus. People left this morning earlier from the earlier service and said, where can I go to learn more about what the Bible says about Jesus as a youth? I said, you heard it all. What you heard is all there is, friends. We all wish there were more, but uh, what she's going to read is all that we have. Now, a 12-year-old is, Jesus is 12 in that story. To be 12 today would be to be a 6th grader or a 7th grader, a middle school student. It's a time when most middle schoolers are beginning to more intensely notice members of the opposite sex, enjoy computer games, competitive sports, rap music, hanging out with friends. And during this period, they often develop very clear definitions. You probably remember doing this yourself of what's cool and what's not. And also when you naturally want greater independence from your parents. You're beginning to feel like, yeah, I'm not so sure I really need mom and dad. I love them and all, but, you know, I'm pretty, I'm pretty good on my, my own. Yeah. Does that remind you of your middle school years? Now, the Torah lists three annual pilgrimage feasts during which Hebrews were commanded to worship in Jerusalem. So the setting for the story that Anne's going to read for us in just a minute is in the spring during Passover season or also known as the Feast of Unleavened Bread. According to Luke, Jesus again was 12 years of age at the time, a significant age for a boy, kind of the, the very end of childhood, because at age 13, Jesus would become recognized fully as an adult, become in modern parlance a bar mitzvah, a son of the law, and responsible as an adult. So in this story, Jesus is officially a child, but only a year away from being recognized as an adult. With that long introduction, Anne is going to come and read our text from the end of Luke chapter 2. When they had finished everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own town of, Na of Nazareth. The child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom and the favor of God was upon him. Now, every year his parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up, as usual, for the festival. When the festival was ended and they started to return, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but his parents did not know it. Assuming that he was in the group of travelers, they went a day's journey. 
Then they started to look for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem to search for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, child, why have you treated us like this? Look, your father and I have been searching for you in great anxiety. And he said to them, why were you searching for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he said to them. Then he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was obedient to them. His mother treasured all of these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in years and in divine and human favor. The word of the Lord. During this particular celebration of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, at least among Jesus' family, something very interesting and unpredictable occurred. After their week in Jerusalem participating in temple worship, Joseph and Mary and their children, they thought... Now, uh, I asked Dale this at the middle of last service, but he reminds us that in Luke's narrative, we haven't learned the names of any of Jesus' siblings. Mark tells us he had at least three brothers, three or four, and a number of sisters, and they go unnamed. The brothers are named. Sorry about the, that. Anyway, so Jesus is the eldest child of a large family of six to probably eight children. Mary and Joseph assume that, of course, he is with them as they travel probably with a whole group from their neighborhood, from the little village of Nazareth. They're making sort of a group hike uh, in terms of their trek back to their village in Nazareth in Galilee, a journey of about 80 to 90 miles, depending on what route was chosen. Traveling with that large group, again, Joseph and Mary assume, of course, Jesus, their eldest. He's pretty responsible, good kid. He's with the group. According to Luke, it's only after the first day of their journey that Joseph and Mary compare notes. They're probably saying, I thought he was with you. I thought he was with you, and he was nowhere to be found. So probably both anxious and angry, they return to Jerusalem, and finally, as Ann just read, it takes the third day, so that's the first day out, then it takes the second day, a third day, till they finally find little Jesus in the temple discussing the Torah with teachers. This is the equivalent of our, probably, our seminary professors. So, notice that in the text, Jesus isn't really so much teaching those elders as dialoguing with them. In Luke's words, he's sitting among the teachers, listening to them, and asking them questions. But they're asking him counter questions because Luke tells us as well that all who heard him were amazed. They were amazed at his understanding and his answers. So people put counter questions to him. Rabbinic teaching involved lots of questions. So what Luke describes is that Jesus listens intently, asked very perceptive questions, and answered some questions put to him. When Mary and Joseph finally find Jesus, they're astonished, and his mother asks, 
child, why have you treated us like this? Look, your father and I have been searching for you with great anxiety. We were worried about you. In other words, you nearly frightened us to death. Why did you act so irresponsibly? In response, Jesus is already learning the rabbinic method. His answer are two questions. Why were you searching for me? Did you not know I must be in my father's house? That is the only story, the only thing we know about the childhood of Jesus, friends, within the official canon of the New Testament. Now, what does this text suggest about Jesus' self-understanding at the tender age of 12? That he already has an intimate relationship with God and a surprisingly deep understanding of and curiosity about Holy Scripture. And further, Jesus sees himself as an obedient son of his heavenly Father. How does he come to the self-realization? We must assume that like other boys of his time, Jesus was given religious instruction both in the home and in the synagogue, especially focusing on Hebrew scripture. Jesus is an eager student, so much so that by the age of a modern seventh grader, he could intelligently dialogue with the equivalent, again, of seminary professors. So Jesus received a wonderful religious education and nurture and has matured in a wonderful way, at age 12. Now, in case Jesus' independence in this instance might seem to pave the way for more serious acts of rebelliousness, Luke closes his narrative with these words. Then Jesus went down with them and came to Nazareth and was obedient to them. His mother treasured all these things in her heart. And then this last sentence may seem like a throwaway. It's not. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in years and in divine and human favor. In other words, Jesus was a loyal and obedient son who continued to grow in every respect. Now, friends, as you well know, the New Testament teach, teaches two complementary or paradoxical truths that Jesus is both fully divine and fully human. Sometimes Christians, ancient and modern, seek to so emphasize Jesus' deity that they negate and deny Jesus' full humanity. As in, for instance, the infancy gospel of Thomas, from which I, I just shared some stories with you. While intending no disrespect, in order to convince skeptics of Jesus' divine status, these early Christians end up making Jesus less than authentically human. And friends, in doing so, they demean God's self-revelation in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. In his wonderful book, God and Human Suffering, theologian Douglas John Hall summarizes our human condition. He says, just looking at Genesis chapter 2, one of those creation accounts in the early part of Genesis, all human beings share four realities. Here they are. Loneliness, the experience of limits, including limited knowledge, anxiety, and finally temptation. Now, if Jesus shared none of those characteristics, as in, for example, the infancy gospel of Thomas, if his humanity was a sort of costume that he put on superficially, 
then he cannot represent us before God. He cannot reconcile us to God. If Jesus was not authentically human, he could not suffer for us because he could not suffer at all. He had no limits in those apocryphal documents. But friends, Luke tells us that Jesus was a remarkably perceptive and God-centered young boy, but like each and every one of us, Jesus also had to grow in both faith and understanding. Like us, he experienced loneliness, limits, temptation, and anxiety. Now, I think this is wonderful news for us today, Jesus' authentic humanity. Why? Because only by joining us and fully embracing our humanity can Jesus represent us and redeem us from our bondage to sin. Only by choosing to suffer can Jesus conquer sin and death. Only by laying aside his divine attributes, as was suggested in that hymn from Philippians chapter 2 that we recited together earlier, only by laying aside those divine attributes and becoming one of us can Jesus fully identify with us, which is exactly what the canonical gospels say happened in the incarnation. Back to Douglas John Hall who writes, a God who achieves sol solidarity with us must, must become a suffering God. So friends, the good news of Christmas is that the great transcendent God has become the authentic and fragile human being, Jesus of Nazareth. So whatever anxieties and temptations and limitations and loneliness that we all face, we know Jesus faced similar struggles in his own life. Jesus did not wish to remove himself from our challenging human experiences, but he desired instead to join us in all our pain and struggle. The writer of the letter to the Hebrews tells us that Jesus functioned as our great high priest in order to represent us before God. And he explains, we do not have one who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tested as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Amen.